Hello, and welcome to HODLPAC's interview series with candidates for and members of the United States Congress. HODLPAC is a community-governed political action committee with the mission of supporting candidates whose policies would promote the development of cryptocurrencies and the decentralized economy in the United States. Much like the crypto networks we want to see thrive, HODLPAC relies on the participation of the community. Those who donate decide which politicians we support. If you'd like to learn more and get involved, feel free to visit us at www.hodlpack.org. I'm your host, Tyler Wordy. Our guest today is Representative Stacey Plaskett from the United States Virgin Islands at-large Congressional District. She is in her third turn, having first been elected in 2014. Representative Plaskett is a member of the House Agricultural Committee, as well as the Subcommittee on Commodity Exchanges, Energy, and Credit, which, contrary to what some may think, is quite relevant to crypto-related policy. Representative Plaskett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I think a great place to start would be with a bit of your background. Um, You have a unique position in Congress as the at-large representative for the United States Virgin Islands. So uh, please tell us, how did you get involved in politics and make your way to Congress? This was not a position that I have spent a lot of my adult life thinking about. Um, I really enjoy politics from um, a policy side, but had not really seen myself as an elected official. I have spent all of my professional career primarily in the public sector as a public servant. And so running for Congress seemed to be an evolution of my public service, um, taking it up a notch to a way that I felt that I could help my community, um, utilizing the skills that I'd gained over time um, to advance them in the best way. And that happened to be in an elected position. Um, You know, I started out as after law school as a prosecutor in New York um, and then spent a bit of time working for an offshoot in McKinsey and Company doing financial and corporate investigations and then went to uh, back to Washington, D.C., where I'd gone to college and to law school to work on the Hill and then work in an administration at the Justice Department. I then went home after working for a short stint uh, in the in the private sector, went home to the Virgin Islands, uh, which had always been a goal of myself and my family to give back to our roots, um, come back to our ancestral home uh, and work for the Virgin Islands Economic Development Authority. And while there, I worked on a lot of public private partnerships. I drafted the language for tax increment financing, um, utilization of new market tax credits in the territory, uh, but realized that a lot of the issues that we face were federal and there were impediments to us really growing economically. uh, And that led me to deciding to run for Congress. So this is my third term and I have really placed myself on two committees that I think are very important for economic development. One is the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and the other is Agriculture. Most people don't really think of those two committees as committees that are supportive of economic development, but to me, in the Caribbean, those are really the two pillars for economic growth. Great. And another thing people might not necessarily think of when they talk about the House Agricultural Committee is cryptocurrency. But indeed, you know, the House Ag, as it's called, does play a large role in the regulation of cryptocurrencies through its oversight of the CFTC. So can you explain to us what the Agricultural Committee does generally and then, you know, maybe how its activities are relevant to crypto? Sure. 
Um, interestingly, when people think of house agriculture, they think of animals, <laughs> they think of um, nutrition. Some may think of, you know, the foods, food stamps, food programs, school lunch programs are also part of the agriculture committee, um, livestock, but also forestry. And then of course, wheat and, and other things that we grow. But some of the areas that people do not think a lot of are the two committees where I spend most of my time. I am the chair of the Biotechnology, Horticulture and Research Committee, which does a lot of agri-tech um, discussion. We do a lot of oversight in the agri-tech area, which is genetic modifications, the future of agriculture, how technology is being utilized. But also I'm in the Commodities Exchange uh, Energy and Credit Committee. Uh, that's a really interesting committee to me. <clears throat> Most people forget that many of the uh, components of agriculture are actually commodities. Um, and that includes, you know, the things that we think of, wheat and sorghum, um, soy, um, corn. And so the uh, commodities exchange is a market where various commodities are traded. And the agriculture committee has oversight over that. You know, whether it's the um, CTFC committee or the commodities exchange, um, of course, people think of the finance, financial services committee, but agriculture is really the base of that. Where, where we're looking at agricultural products and raw materials, wheat, barley, and others. But interestingly, the definition of commodities has grown to also include things that we would not normally think of, such as Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. That's very interesting. Can you speak a bit more about how that came to be? And related, are there special considerations made towards uh, you know these new kinds of digital commodities as compared to more of the traditional ones that you mentioned? Well, this is an emerging market. And so providing oversight over something that's emerging is something that members of Congress are uh, still having great discussion about. How much oversight is appropriate? How much should be allowed? Um, who has entire jurisdiction over that? Whether it is uh, the Agriculture Committee or the Financial Services Committee with the SEC. Um, you know, the CFTC um, was first the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission was first established in 1974 to provide oversight of markets uh, that was previously under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, and that was usually the things, the hard uh, market materials that we discussed. But uh, in 2015, the CFTC determined that Bitcoin and other virtual currencies are properly defined as commodities and that the individuals who create the platforms for the purchase and sale of Bitcoins were in fact operating a facility for trading or processing swaps. Um, and that then allowed CFTC and the Agriculture Committee to have some jurisdiction over it. Um, so having found that Bitcoin and virtual commodities uh, belong with CFTCs, their enforcement of it is usually at this time still with classic fraud cases. So in terms of what 
how much further we're going to go, we're still looking at. Many of us, like myself, are concerned that we do not create so much regulations that the industry cannot evolve, cannot grow to maturity. And so where I'm interested, like some of my colleagues, in creating a sandbox regulatory framework, the same that's in London, which allows um, those who are involved in it to have some leeway, have some flexibility in being engaged in developing the area, while at the same time having some regulatory oversight um, to ensure that bad actors or great fraud or even um, uh, unsuspecting or um, you know injuries that others would not even necessarily be consciously uh, trying to do don't take place. Uh, and so, you know, there's still a lot of debate going on as to what exactly that's going to look like. Um, and so the discussion is going on in Congress right now. Got it. Thank you. So you mentioned the idea of a regulatory sandbox. Correct me if I'm wrong, but any such effort would need to coordinate among the different financial regulators out there. You mentioned the SEC and the CFTC, but then there's also the CFPB, which is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. There's other agencies that might be relevant. So how do you think about the relationship between all these regulators when thinking about crafting solutions like you were talking about, you know, who gets jurisdiction, who doesn't, how do they work together and, and stuff like that? Well, I think it takes a while for it to sort itself out. Um, you know, I think we've done it in the past in other areas. And so it's not as if it's go not going to happen. Um, I think that, you know, part of it will be Congress's responsibility to determine who has jurisdiction the other, of course, will be to the judicial branch. Should enforcement or um, there become conflicts of interest, you know, that's what we have our judicial um, branch for. And we're hopeful that they will as well, um, when Congress is unable to, provide some framework and guidance for us in developing who should or should not be uh, have proper, proper oversight and, you know, whether there should be a larger clearinghouse or some greater um, oversight over the entire industry, because it's constantly evolving with the advent of, you know, blockchain as a process that adds another level of complexity uh, in determining what will be under which committee in Congress's jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, of course, the environment that we're in, Tyler, with uh, the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of that has been put on hold. But these are some of the questions that prior to um, the shutdown, a lot of members of Congress were involved in discussions. Absolutely. That makes sense. So related to coronavirus relief, you, along with past guests of ours on this show, were part of an effort to urge the Treasury Department to think about you know, using blockchain in order to improve the process of dispersing funds, as well as tracking other kinds of information associated with, you know, relief efforts. Can you talk a little bit more about your involvement with that letter and, you know, what your motivation was to get involved with that? Sure. So in April, I believe you're talking about the letter to Secretary Mnuchin, members of Congress and most of us are members of the Blockchain Caucus, um, took, uh, made a request of Secretary Mnuchin 
that in his efforts to implement the CARES Act, that he utilizes um, tools that are already in place for us. And one of those, of course, is the reliance on blockchain and distributed ledger technologies um, to encourage the Department of the Treasury Department to utilize private sector innovations to support the functions of government to track and to not only distribute, but to track relief programs and efforts, um, whether it's for uh, food that is going out to, uh, you know, we have supply chain issues for food distribution, for those that are food insecure during this time, coming from the Department of Agriculture, to Treasury's utilization of small business funds, um, and uh, even to uh, stimulus checks that are going to individuals. Utilizing these um, mechanisms that are already in place in the private sector can really provide uh, liquidity quickly, securely, and transparently um, to Americans who need it most during this difficult time. In the debate around the digital dollar is especially relevant to what you were just talking about. I know you're not on the House Financial Services Committee, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on on that conversation generally uh, about the digital dollar, especially as it relates to how it might help financial inclusion efforts uh, in economic development. Sure. I know that last week, um, Steve, uh, Steve Lynch and his subcommittee on the Financial Services Committee, a member from Massachusetts, held a hearing on digital dollar. And I know that um, the chair of the committee, Maxine Waters, along with other members, have introduced legislation, uh, particularly regarding uh, the use of digital dollar um, with the CARES Act and its importance during this time to create, utilize the Federal Reserve Bank um, to create a digital banking account for the unbanked. You know, the unbanked is something that has been with us for a long period of time. And there have been projects going on to see how we can alleviate um, those who are unbanked being able not only to have credit, to, but to make purchases that they're unable to without um, a bank account. There was a lot of discussion about this in the 90s with, um, elect you know, when we moved from having um, checks to going to a checklist society. That in itself, I, I can recall when I was in management consulting, there were studies done on, is that possible? Um, I even worked on a project that was sent to the Federal Reserve for the Federal Reserve, talking about um, you know, a checklist, paperless check society, and is that even possible? And you know, in 1998, Everybody thought that was impossible, and here we are today where most people do not actually own a physical checkbook. And so Congress is, interestingly, along with many in the private sector and others who are working on digital dollar project, coming up with innovative ideas on how to include those who have been outside of the banking um, the unbanked, those who have been uh, left out of the, the, the use of banking, and that is, in fact, to create a tokenized form of the U.S. dollar that operates alongside existing monies and is primarily distributed during uh, using existing architect of commercial banks and money transmitters um, to create a transaction for those who have not had banks. 
you know, a banking opportunity before. And Maxine Waters, Chair Waters, wants the Federal Reserve to be the person that is holding that for for others. Um, you know, this is something that is really new. I, I think it's exciting that Congress is looking into this first. And so we'll we'll see what happens at this time. That's very interesting. And, and I'd love to double click on this topic. You mentioned the private sector and its role in creating solutions for the unbanked. Those developments are happening simultaneously to these policy conversations within the public sector about a digital dollar. How do you think about the relative roles of either side of that, you know, the public and the private sector, and maybe how they can work together to solve this issue that I think everybody agrees on needs to be solved, you know, which is banking the unbanked and making it easier to have an inclusive financial system? Well, I don't think that we've had any super innovation in the, you know, Americas, we always bill ourselves as the innovators, uh, the leaders of innovation, um, building systems. But I don't think any of that ever happens where there is not a utilization of uh, whether it be private sector technology into the public sector or even public sector technology into the private sector. When we look at GPS, uh, you know, cell phones, whether it's the internet, Um, You know, going back further, space programs, it's all about uh, the technological advances between the public and private sector working together. Um, Just as an aside, uh, several weeks ago, having a conversation uh, with members of Congress, uh, the new, I'm a member of the new Dems, which are the moderate Democrats focused on business innovation, having a discussion with pharma Um, and the leaders of Farmer talking about their working in cooperation with NIH, CDC, um, the counterparts in London and France, all working together for a vaccine for COVID-19. Without that cooperation between the private sector and the public sector, recognizing that this is one time where we cannot be worried about um, patents or uh, proprietary information, who's going to be uh, the one to take it to the uh, market level, there will not be a vaccine in time to really slow down the economic as well as the public health uh, crisis that we're facing right now. In the same way uh, that that was done, that's what uh, dealing with the unbanked has got to take. It's got to take um, a partnership between the public, the private sector and the public. In this instance, many members of Congress believe that it's the Federal Reserve that has the responsibility as well as the capacity to be able to deal with this issue. Um, They've been studying this for a long time. Um, It's part of their tenant. And so the Federal Reserve Bank, working with the private sector, is best suited to uh, create some kind of tokenized system that will allow a digital dollar um, to be utilized for those who uh, have been unable to, to, to be banked before. And it's probably also really important um, to ensure that, you know, when we're looking at what's happening right now, um, this talks with Fed, you know, talking about Fed accounts um, as a delivery mechanism for benefits that uh, individuals may need, right? rather than individuals getting checks sent out to them to banks. 
there are so many individuals who don't have banks. How do they then receive those monies? Are they going to get these you know, cards that you have to activate? What if, in fact, there was an idea of a Fed account, which is the idea that, um, you know, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, um, Congresswoman um, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal um, have to um, use a digital dollar as a delivery mechanism to speed the uh, stimulus funds and other um, monetary, um, you know, currencies that the federal government are giving out to Americans, getting it straight to them. So to talk specifically about your district, the U.S. Virgin Islands, you know, you said economic development there is a big focus of yours as a member of Congress. How do you view these discussions about financial inclusion, specifically in the context of your district? Frankly, if our listeners here are anything like me, you know, they might not know much about the Virgin Islands. So I think it'd be very, you know, interesting to learn more, more about them. Sure. Well, uh, I think that um, the discussions that we're having about access, about the availability of, you know, funds, um, the ability to be banked, um, are always magnified in a place where people are outside of the mainstream or don't have the same access as, as others do. You know, the Virgin Islands is an unincorporated territory of the United States. We are not treated the same. Um, when you live in the Virgin Islands, you lose your ability to vote for a president. Um, are myself as the representative, um, I vote in committee. I engage in all the activities of all the member, except for one very, very crucial point is that I do not have the ability to vote on final passage of legislation. And so that affects us tremendously in terms of funding, in terms of our ability to uh, receive equity. People always try to use the argument, well, you guys, you know, don't pay taxes. You keep your taxes. Well, when you have, um, you know, a poverty rate of about 20%, then being able to keep your taxes doesn't really help uh, people help our general fund. It was utilized from the very beginning as a means to keep us in a lesser role. But all that being said, part of the reason that the United States purchased the Virgin Islands is not because we are a great vacation spot, but because our ge of our geographic location. We had geopolitical strategic importance to the United States during World War I, and so we were purchased from Denmark um, to ensure the German U-boats were unable to come into the mouth of the Caribbean. We are the most southern and the most eastern point in the United States. And it's also the reason that seven nations have owned us because of that same purpose. We, uh, you know, had a an amazing um, land and so grew an abundance of sugarcane, but we also had a geographic importance to all of the seven nations that owned us. And that has been utilized by others as well. We have Tyler uh, sitting off of the coast of St. Croix, um, buried on our shore, uh, the hub between St a hub between South America and North America, um, 
is Global Crossing. So um, Global Crossing put their, buried the hub between South America and North America off of the island of St. Croix because of its geographic location. So on St. Croix is the greatest broadband capacity outside of New York City, more than Silicon Valley, more than anywhere in the United States. But we're unable to utilize it because of other, uh, you know, inequities. One, we have inefficient energy costs here in the Virgin Islands. We have uh, an inability to um, retain our best and our brightest. Um, and so data service, um, broadband usage, and others who could utilize this here on the island, such as Bitcoin operators and others, um, are not as attracted to a location like the Virgin Islands. We have a research and technology park, which is trying to advertise that. So the growth of, you know, Bitcoins, the growth of blockchain is something that's really important to the Virgin Islands to utilize our raw, what we have as a, a raw ability right now, having this broadband capacity um, to utilize it to diversify and grow our own economy. Um, you know, any of your members want to come and live in the Virgin Islands, um, we're a great place to operate any of these kinds of businesses from a U.S. flag jurisdiction and still uh, stay in a climate that's, you know, uh, on average 82 degrees all year round. Awesome. That sounds very nice. Uh, it sounds like a good trade to make with DC's weather. So so for our customary last question, obviously, we know that members of Congress like yourself are super busy. And you have many other things going on other than just crypto related issues. So what are some of your other legislative priorities for the rest of 2020 and, and beyond? Wow, great question. So um, I think one of the things that the pandemic has really brought to light is um, concerns about food supply and food security. And so on my subcommittee on biotech, horticulture and research, which is the largest subcommittee on agriculture, we're really working on how do we ensure that one, our farmers and those who are in the horticulture space, which is everything that's grown that is not a commodity, are able to continue growing and how are we able to continue to feed Americans during this time and make sure that no American is hungry? So that's um, a subject that I'm working very hard. My team is spending a lot of time on. The other is we have just passed the Invest Act, which is an infrastructure bill that was passed, um, authored, you know, and put together by Democratic leadership. Um, that talks about how do we invest in America. And it entails some uh, components that are very important to me. One is how to bring broadband to rural and to distressed urban areas. There are so many locations that I think COVID has shown where children have to work virtually, live in a city, and still have no access to internet, don't have access in their homes or in their neighborhoods and the same for rural children, that it's my belief that the internet is in fact the railroad for the 21st century. And in the same way that the United States invested and supported 
rail for goods and services, jobs, and the growth of this country, that until we make the investment in broadband um, and make sure that it reaches every home, that we will not be continuing to be the innovators and the inventors that we have been in this country in the past. So our team has been working on that, along with how do we pay for uh, this tremendous infrastructure, whether it's through an infrastructure bank um, or utilization, uh, you know, creating a deferred maintenance um, fund that continues to update and, and take care of the investment that we've made in our infrastructure over time. So that's, those are two of the things that we're working on right now. And of course, for our home, we're always, you know, we were hit in 2017 by two category five hurricanes. We still are facing a lot of uh, hurdles in terms of getting approval on rebuilding of our islands. And so we're looking to still rebuild our schools that we've lost, um, our hospitals, which are critically important now. So that's some of the work that uh, my staff has been um, diligently working on outside of that. Great. Representative Plaskett, thanks so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed this conversation and hopefully we can do it again soon. Thanks so much and you take care and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Crypto in Congress presented by Hodelpack. If you'd like to learn more about Hodelpack and our mission, check us out at www.hodelpack.org or follow us on Twitter at Hodelpack. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get exclusive updates and access to transcripts from each episode. I'm Tyler Wordy, and I'll see you next week as we speak to our first non-congressional guest, Jason Somensato, Senior Counsel at Zero X.